and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 61, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and by Government Emissary. Hmm. And, you know, I think we've got to update that apps list, Chris, because I'm, I'm hearing talk of other apps in the world. We have to figure out what's... Basically, we have to learn how these podcasting works, I think. Yeah, I, we, we're not very good at this. <laughs> we don't know. But there are <laughs> other apps that do aggregate this podcast. I know you drop the RSS feed. We'll figure it out. It's not hard to get us. But anyway, we're doing a book today suggested by Jesse DeJong at Jesse A. DeJong, D-E-J-O-N-G. Pretty talented artist in his own right, but as far as I could tell, he had nothing uh, tremendous to promote, which is fine. I think he's uh, promoting himself as perfectly okay in this world. And the book he wanted us to do is X Factor, Volume 1, number 71, October 1991, cover date. Written by Peter David, cover and interior pencils by Larry Stroman, cover and interior inks by Al Milgram, colors by Glynis Oliver, lettered by Mike Heisler, edited by Bob Harris, cover price was $1 USD and $1.25 Canadian. Mm-hmm. And Bob Harris, he not only edited, but he presided over it. Oh, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> we really do have to mention when these guys are presiding over this. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, now, the, uh, nice. the man who presided over the storytelling pencil was uh, Peter David, uh, full name Peter Allen David. He was born September 23rd, 1956 in Fort Meade, Maryland. He has two youngest siblings, a brother and a sister, both. Um, he spent his young life in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And then the movie, the, the family moved to Verona, New Jersey, where when he became an adolescent. His, uh, he first became interested in comics when he was about five years old. He was reading copies of uh, Harvey Comics' Casper and Wendy in a barbershop. Uh, he became interested in superheroes, though, uh, by seeing the Adventures of Superman TV series. Uh, his folks didn't approve of the superhero comics, particularly those pesky Marvel comics where the heroes kind of look like monsters. Yeah. You know, probably talking about the Thing and uh, the Hulk. Yeah, they definitely uh, had some creepy-looking uh, heroes. Sure, sure. Now, uh, Peter read these comics in secret, beginning with his first Marvel book, which was the Fantastic Four Annual Number 3, November 1965 cover date, and that featured the wedding of Reed Richards and Sue Storm. Wow. It's a pretty big issue there. Yeah, I saw almost every character in Marvel at the time. Just about <laughs> in, the, in, the, uh, in the stands there. Yep. Uh, now, uh, eventually, his parents uh, gave in. They relented, and uh, Peter became a uh, big fan of Superman. Yeah. Uh, he attended his first comic book convention around the time that Jack Kirby's New Gods premiered. So I would say that would be February, March 1971. Actually, probably December 1970. Uh, Perhaps, yeah. That's when New Gods 1 hit the stands, but I couldn't find a corresponding convention right there. But that's a, somewhere in that area. Uh, after he asked his father to take him to one of Phil Suling's shows in New York where David obtained Kirby's autograph. David's earliest interest in writing came through the journalism work of his father, Gunter. And he began to entertain the notion of becoming a professional writer at age 12, buying a copy of the Guide to Writer's Market to the Writer's Market in the hope of becoming a reporter. He attended New York University and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in journalism. His first professional assignment was covering the World Science Fiction Convention held in Washington in 1974 for the Philadelphia Bulletin. His first published fiction was an Asimov science fiction, which was sort of just a... Uh, 
oh, I don't know what he was, an anthology magazine of the time. Yeah. Uh, he also sold an op-ed piece to the New York Times, but received far many more rejections than his acceptances in general. So he was going to hang up his writing pen, and he came to work in book publishing, as so many writers do. And his first publishing job was for the E.P. Dutton imprint, Elsevier Nelson, where he worked mainly as an assistant to the editor-in-chief. He later worked in sales and distribution for Playboy paperbacks, and this will become important in a minute. Peter lost interest in comics as a teenager, but it was rekindled when he saw a copy of Superman vs. Muhammad Ali on, uh, on the stands in 1978, uh, and later X-Men 95, he says, which was October 75. Um, yeah, I don't know how. I guess they could have still, <laughs> they, comics could have still been on the stands. They didn't always you never know. rotate them out, so it's, it's not impossible that in the 78 he saw the... Uh, comic from 75, and discovered it in that latter book, the uh, all-new, all-different team that had first appeared in Giant Size X-Men number one, May 1975. So that's the first time he saw, uh, you know... The so, international like, team, The international yes. team, Colossus and all them. Uh, and these had been the first two comics he'd purchased in a long while. Now, he would work eventually in Marvel's sales department under a lady named Carol Kalish. Uh, he eventually succeeded Carol as sales manager. Uh, he unsuccessfully tried submitting stories from Moon Knight to, his, to the uh, then added editor, uh, Denny O'Neill. Um, now, we were editorializing here. Uh, these stories were never accepted, uh, but we're thinking that was might have been more Denny not wanting to you know, cross the streams between yeah. creative and, and office or admin. There, uh, there rather. apparently was a... I'm not sure. It might have even been a written policy, but there definitely was sure. some sort of a, a working policy not to allow people to cross between to creative cross. and the office. But we don't know, obviously, the mind of Denny O'Neill, so... This is also true. Now, uh, three years into his tenure as direct sales manager, uh, Jim Owsley became editor of the Spider-Man titles. Uh, Owsley was impressed with how David had not previously hesitated to work with him when Owsley was an assistant editor under Larry Hama. Uh, so when he became editor, he purchased a Spider-Man story from David, which would appear in The Spectacular Spider-Man number 103 that was covered dated June 1985. Uh, he then purchased the uh, Death of Gene DeWolf story that happened in Spectacular Spectacular Spider-Man number 107 through 110. This was October 85 through January 86 cover date, and that was a wonderful story. That was yeah, a great, you're a big fan of that story. One of my very favorite Spider-Man stories, if not my favorite Spider-Man story. After, after you talked it up, I went and got the trade, and I gotta say, I like it a lot. It was a great story. It's very, awesome. very yes. heartbreaking, but good story. Absolutely. Uh, he also might have done some work on the Hulk. A little bit. A uh, little bit. Maybe, t maybe 12 <laughs> years or so. Uh, mostly uninterrupted. Uh, we're talking issues around you know, 331 to 466, plus you know three or four annuals. Uh, that was May 1987 through July 1998. Wow. Uh, while doing Incredible Hulk, he also took on the book we're going to discuss in just a little bit. That's factor. right. You know, I'll tell you about that Incredible Hulk. I think we've mentioned this on the show before. I'm not myself a really a big Incredible mm -hmm. Hulk fan, but that's the run I recommend when people want sure. to ask Absolutely. me about it. I'm like, that's worth reading. It's crazy. It takes it goes a lot of weird places, but I really, if you have the Marvel app, it's a great place to just dig mm -hmm. into it. Uh, now, the artist of this over here, Larry Stroman, uh, he began his career with the goal of being a comic book artist, but became sidetracked by a lot of other stuff, according to his own quote, <laughs> and worked first as a draftsman before moving to New York City and working as a portrait artist for a few years. While working on comics, Stroman prefers the Marvel method of creation, 
To avoid pacing problems at the end of a comic, he would draw the last few pages of each story immediately after drawing the first page, and then draw the middle pages last, which actually makes good sense if you think about it. Absolutely. Uh, Stroman's earliest comic book work was in 1985 when he illustrated backup stories in First Comics American Flag, number 21 to 23, and World's Finest Comics, number 316 and 317 for DC Comics. He then illustrated Alien Legion, volume 2, number 10 through 20 for Marvel Comics. During this time, he also drew a bunch of other Marvel books, such as Alpha Flight, Annual, Cloak and Dagger, What the... And, and Ghost Rider, as well as books for other publishers, such as the Mark III for Dark Horse Comics and the Law of Dread for Fleetway Quality. These jobs sometimes consisted of sharing art contributions with other artists on certain issues, such as drawing a small number of pages of Uncanny X-Men number 273 and providing spot illustration for the reference series Who's Who in the DC Universe number 9, both of which were published in 1991, so he got work where he could find it. Uh, that same year, following the Muir Island Saga storyline that altered the status quo of the X-Men family of books, he started drawing X-Factor, which we're going to talk about today. Yes. Now, uh, before we get into this current run on X-Factor, let's go to what happened before. Uh, There's a lot <laughs> happened before. <laughs> a lot of stuff happened before. Uh, now, uh, X-Factor, the title, launched in 1986, featuring an eponymous team composed of the five original X-Men that would debut in X-Men number one way back in 1963. We're going to name them for you. Sure. We got Angel, a.k.a. Warren Worthington III, a millionaire heir. Uh, he can fly because he's got wings coming out of his back. I wonder if that's how they got his name. Wow, possibly. Hey, we got the Beast, uh, Henry Hank McCoy, uh, Henry Philip McCoy, a brilliant scientist poss possessing bestial strength and agility. And also, after the events of, uh, I think it was Amazing Adventures number 10, he's yeah. also a uh, furry. He was originally uh, gray and furry, and now he's blue and furry. Blue and furry. Originally, though, he was just humanoid. Gooey, yes, just a yeah, thick, dude with big thick feet. Human. Yes. <laughs> uh, we have Cyclops, a.k.a. Scott Summers, uh, the original X-Men's uh, field leader. Uh, he can emit powerful optic blasts. Of, it's a curse, actually. Yeah. Uh, the optic blast from his eyes. It's true. Yeah, it's something he has to control with a visor. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Jean Grey. We knew her at one time as Marvel Girl. As a Cyclops' longtime love, she has telekinetic abilities. And she done a bad thing, but we're going to discuss that in a moment and why she's not really Marvel Girl anymore. Iceman, this is Robert Louis Bobby Drake, a jokester gifted with cryokinetic abilities, namely making, you know, snow and ice wherever he likes. Sure. Uh, Layton says, I wasn't much a fan of the new X-Men. To me, the Beast, Marvel Girl, Iceman, the Angel, and Cyclops were the real X-Men. So I pitched a proposal to bring back all the originals. Original writer Bob Layton wanted X-Factor to be a reunion of the original X-Men, an event complicated by the extensive histories of the characters following the initiation of a new team of X-Men in 1975. Angel, Beast, and Iceman had been in The Defenders, which was canceled with issue number 152, February 1986 cover date, by Peter Gillis and Don Perlin. In fact, the other members are seemingly inconveniently killed off. But we'll <laughs> save all that for an episode of The Defenders. But it all, it all happened very neatly to allow them sure. to join X-Factor. <laughs> yeah, and they were also on the Champions for a while. Uh, Beast was an Avenger for a while. It wow. was a... 
they they were they were split far and wide they were during that break. Yeah. They were they were uh, they were bidding uh, to, they were going to the highest bidder. Now uh, bringing back a uh, Gene Gray and Cyclops was going to be a bit trickier than that, thanks to a story called the Dark Phoenix Saga. Now this actually began in 1976 in Uncanny X Men's issues uh, 101 through 108. This is October 76 through December 77 cover dates, written by Chris Claremont with art by uh, Dave Cockrum and John Byrne. Then the story known as the Phoenix Saga. Not yet dark. No, um, has not darkened at this point. No, we're still we're still bright and uh, happy here. <laughs> now, when the uh, X Men shuttle is damaged while on a mission to space, uh, Jean Grey calls out for help and is answered by the Phoenix Force, which is the sum of all life in the universe. Uh, now there are you know there are three or four cosmic <laughs> entities in the Marvel universe that seem to have similar uh... essentially be something like that. Yeah, there's some yes. of life for the you know they use the same adjectives essentially. Uh, <laughs> now uh, the Phoenix Force is moved. By Jean's love for Scott, and then and then infuses Jean Grey with God level powers. Uh, the shuttle plummets to Earth, and everyone turns out all right. Hey. Yeah, the X-Men are all very accepting of this uh, new Jean Grey being, now calling herself Phoenix and possessing incredible cosmic powers. Uh, this is, you know, this would be earth-shattering to people like you or me, but to the X-Men, this is uh, Tuesday. Yeah, it's normal stuff. Yeah. Now, uh, Jean promises to keep her God-level powers in check, which is, you know, it's good enough for the rest of the team. That's right. right. I think she pinky-sweared behind uh, off-panel, so it was fine. She hates uh, asparagus, so I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, now, the Dark Phoenix Saga is really what we're talking about here. This played out in X-Men number 129 to 138, January-October 1980 covers, written by Chris Claremont, drawn by John Byrne. In this, Mastermind wants to use Phoenix's ter- terrific cosmic abilities, in part to gain membership into the Hellfire Club. This was a group of wealthy folks that control world events from behind the scenes. Another thing, Marvel has three or four groups that do the similar kind of thing. <laughs> uh, Mastermind uses a device created by the Hellfire Club's white queen, Emma Frost, to seduce Jean better. He also takes the name of Jason Wingard, which probably does a lot of the seducing by itself, I assume. Sure. Uh, Mastermind projects a false ancestral me- memory into Jean of her her as Lady Grey. She's the Hellfire Club's Black Queen in the distant past. Having gotten a taste of the dark side, Jean decides she likes it. She captures the rest of the X-Men for the Hellfire Club. Her boyfriend, Scott, and Mastermind, they have a psychic duel, and during the duel, Mastermind's psychic hold over Jean Grey is broken. Now she's unfettered, and she renames herself Dark Phoenix. She knocks everyone out and goes on a streaking to a distant galaxy, where she repowers herself by absorbing a sun and destroying a solar system. Uh, one of those planets in the solar system is full of sentient life. Mm-hmm. The Shi'ar aliens, and I'm, I, I am glossing over some minute facts, but we're just trying to get the strokes of who Jean Grey sure. is here. Uh, the Shi'ar aliens, uh, you know, this is like the, you know, one of the many good aliens that that. Earth this is the analog to the, well, the Imperial Guard of the Shi'ar, uh, like the analogs to the Legion. Yeah, that's, you know, the, the good guys. In, in yeah. sense. Now, the Shi'ar aliens, they tell the X-Men of Jean's genocide and that she must be executed. The X-Men and Dark Phoenix battle on the surface of the moon, and Jean Grey regains her senses and then immediately disintegrates herself in shame. Mm-hmm. Now... Well, Jean's dead, so how do we get her into X-Factor? I don't know. Hmm. Well, Mr. Layton was adamant that the team needed a female member. Uh, so they somebody suggested uh, perhaps the roller skating disco mutant Dazzler <laughs> as a possibility. Uh, the initial house ads for uh, the upcoming X-Factor series showed a woman uh, on the team 
but in silhouette. So yeah. you didn't know who it was. And then Kurt Busiek came up with the retcon <laughs> to end all retcons. <laughs> he, he mentioned something about a clone being in the chimney. No. Uh, <laughs> now, upon learning that Jim Shooter would not bring Jean back unless she had been cleared of her crime, Busiek, along with friends uh, Richard Howell and Carol Kalish, saw making Jean clean as a challenge. Uh, turns out that the Dark Phoenix wasn't Jean Grey, but a copy of Jean Grey imbued with her memories. And, uh, you know, they crashed in Jamaica Bay, so the original Jean Grey was placed in a healing cocoon underwater. <laughs> now, when the X-Men made it back to Earth in their damaged shuttle, Phoenix never thought to mention that she wasn't actually Jean Grey. Yeah, never came well, up, really. To, to be fair, nobody asked. No, so. that's right. <laughs> Now, the original Jean Grey, still having nap time in her cocoon, sinks to the bottom of Jamaica Bay to lie nestled among wet medical waste and murdered teamsters. Yep, that's all that's uh, there. Now, now, Busick related this idea to uh, writer Roger Stern at the Ithaca Fan Fest. Uh, on their way to a radio interview, Stern lamented the fact that they could never bring back the original five. And so Busick shared that idea. Uh, Stern would later relate this, the uh, the concept to John Byrne. Yeah, and Byrne then wrote and illustrated Fantastic Four 286. This is January 1986 cover date. This incorporated Busick's idea into it, although oddly, he left his name off the credits instead signing it, You Know Who. That's uh, weird, right? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not clear why that. Maybe because he felt like he hadn't really written it. Uh, you know, he's such a stickler for that kind of thing. But uh, <laughs> you never know with him. Yeah, the whim of a John Byrne, you could you know go nuts <laughs> trying to figure it out. Uh, also of interest, Kurt Busiek was paid for these two issues of plot at John Byrne's plot rate, which at the time was about as high as it went for bullpenners. Quite a bit of dough. So in this issue, the Avengers dig up Jean Grey's cocoon, and Reed Richards and Captain America crack her out of it. I um, mean, actually, she emerges herself. They can't do it, but the point is, she's back. <laughs> she uh, several panels of this comic were written by Chris Claremont and redrawn by Jackson Guice to depict the Phoenix entity as a less malevolent than Byrne intended. They're credited on the title page as doing so. In order to join X-Factor, Cyclops walked out on his new wife, Madeline Pryor, an Alaskan pilot who bore a strange resemblance to Jean Grey and their infant son, Nathan Christopher. Madeline was, no, or should I say Madeline, that probably is right, Madeline, mm. was named after folk singer Maddie Pryor from the band Steel Eye Span. Yeah, Claremont was a fan. All right, fair enough. Uh, X-Factor was created as an offshoot of the X-Men because they don't like the fact that Magneto is now their leader, which is a whole... Other thing, I you know, let's another match. I don't even want to. That we'll crack, <laughs> we'll crack that nut in another episode. Uh, they set up a business in the Tribeca neighborhood of Manhattan, the help of eventual baddie Cameron Hodge, posing as human mutant hunters, but actually secretly training them on how to use their powers. A lot happens with this team. They do have sixty issues before the one we'll be concentrating on today. After all, but for the purposes of this episode, let's jump on to. The Muir Island Saga. Now, the Muir Island Saga was a five-part Marvel Comics crossover event involving the X-Men and X-Factor, published in 1991. It was written by Chris Claremont and Fabian Niciesa. Now, Muir Island is an island off the northwest coast of Scotland uh, containing Moira McTaggart's Mutant Research Lab. 
Now, originally, she created the facility to help her son, Kevin, who we also know as Proteus, uh, and he's an extremely powerful and destructive mutant who can just, like, take over people's bodies and stuff. It was, mm. a, it was a pretty uh, pretty awesome uh, uh, little series back then. Um, now, much of this research is funded by her one-time lover, Professor X. Uh, also, mutant villains are being held on the island. Yeah, uh, scenarios like that never go wrong, right? When you never. hold all the, all the superpowers villains in one place. I mean, how, of, how yeah. often do people break out of the Green Lantern Corps' science cells? Almost, never. Almost never. never yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Muir Island is taken over by the Shadow King, a possible alien or interdimensional being made of psychic energy that feeds on the hatred of humans and possesses them. He also wears a cute little fez. Yep. Uh, now, the, uh, the X-Men go to investigate what's happening on Muir Island, and they're captured and possessed by the Shadow King, all except for island residents at the time, Forge and Banshee. Now, back in New York, Professor X fights with, the sh- with a Shadow King-possessed Colossus who had stepped through the Siege Perilous and became Peter Nicholas, a mm-hmm. Soho artist. Uh, now, uh, the professor cures Colossus' possession and also eliminates this uh, alter ego of Peter Nicholas. Yeah, there's a lot of the tables being reset here in the Muir Island saga mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of different things. Now, X-Factor, That's this would be the original team we just talked the about. Original five. The, yep. Exactly. They got sent to Muir Island by Professor X to solve this Shadow King conundrum. And on the island, Wolverine, Rogue, and Banshee are all free to their mind control by Forge. Banshee explains that Shadow King is using Polaris, a mutant with magnetic powers, as a conduit to steal powers from other mutants. Hmm, I didn't know mutant powers were ferrous. Yeah, <laughs> suddenly. Well, actually, what really happened was Polaris was stripped of her magnetic powers in another story, and now has this power or something like that. Yeah, she's like a malice got into her, and she's giant. And she's like a, she's a it, power yeah. vampire now. It's a total, totally yeah. different. In fact, the name should be changed at this point. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Professor X leads the X-Factor on an assault on Muir Island, which results in a face-off with the Shadow King. Uh, Forge is able to, uh, you know, which you might expect. Uh, Forge is able to use a mind-controlled Psylocke to sever Polaris's connection to the astral plane, which in turn kills the Shadow King. Just take our words for what we're saying here. It's uh, there's a lot happened. Yeah. Uh, Shadow King loses is what we're trying to tell you here, <laughs> and everyone after that lives happily ever after. Oh no! Wait. Actually, Aww. the uh, series had several lasting results for the X-Men family of characters. For instance. The original X-Factor rejoined the X-Men, causing the team to be split into two separate units. Val Cooper, who we'll meet again later, the U.S. government's liaison with various mutant teams, organized a new X-Factor as a government-sponsored team to replace the really recently disbanded Freedom Force. Muir mm-hmm. Island was greatly damaged, causing many of its longtime inhabitants to vacate. Uh, Polaris lost her super strength but regained her magnetic powers. Professor X once again lost the use of his legs. He was up and about on two feet until, until the Muir Island side. Yeah. Uh, now Legion, which is the is Professor X, the bad Professor X's son David. Right. He was left in a catatonic state, in which he would remain until the lead up to Legion Quest. Uh, he'd been fully possessed by the Shadow King, which really messed with his already addled mind. Uh, now the individual X Men would abandon the team uniform costumes for individual costumes once again. They were. 
they all wore the yellow and blue right. geek suits for uh, for a lot of this year. Um, Colossus, of course, we said, was stripped of his Peter Nicholas persona and rejoined the X-Men. Which I think most people thought was a very welcome change. And at, at mm. this point, I want to point out, Chris, we have not even read a comic book yet. We've only talked no. about <laughs> other comic books, but I feel, I feel like I've read several arcs, mm-hmm. but that's all right. We're, we're going to jump right in. We'll jump right into X-Factor issue 71. Uh, now, the cover shows the new X-Factor team in uncomfortable and strained poses. poses. You know, it is the 90s, of course. Mm. Uh, they do feature an unnaturally huge member at the back that we're going to meet in a little while. Mm. Uh, it's a pretty common cover design nowadays, but in the early 90s, it's still somewhat unique. Yeah. Now, the corner box, it advertises a new beginning, a new team, their first adventure, but... Not a new number one. That's strange. I know. Uh, I'm 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 very scared by this high number on this book. But, uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, why you never read it until today. Right? <laughs> yes. No. And of course, this is actually the all new, all different X Factor. Except no substitutes, because there's just going to be plenty of them coming up in the future, folks. Yes. Now the story is called Cutting the Mustard. Uh, the opening splash page is an overshot of a man's head, shaped like a Goomba from Super Mario Brothers, swimming in a mass of purple body. This is our uh, our <laughs> aforementioned big, huge guy. This yeah. is uh, Guido Caricelli, also known as Strong Guy. Uh, he wears round-rimmed sunglasses and only has like a like a whipped cream dollop of white hair. <laughs> it's so from weird. His forehead. Like, what is happening? <laughs> now, is, is that a big Italian haircut? I don't really know. It doesn't seem strange. No. His hand is outstretched to the reader. Yeah, and he's saying, Hey, excuse me, you got any gray poop on? Did we mention that this book was in 1991? <laughs> That's right. Uh, now, we peel back to see a large, comfortable-looking library or den. There's a billiards table, an acoustic guitar, and a huge window overlooking Washington, D.C. Uh, we can actually see the Washington Monument, mm-hmm. if, we're, if we're being exact. Uh, three colorful folks are sitting at a long table, Having a picnic? Yeah, there's even like a, a picnic basket <laughs> and a checkered blanket there. Like, what, what did you change your plans? You were going to go out to the uh, green and you were like, oh, you know, let's stay inside. Maybe today. allergy season. Oh, possibly. They were like, we can have a picnic <laughs> indoors. It'll be just as good. Uh, anyway, the people sitting seated here are the green-haired Lorna Dane, a.k.a. Polaris, and the shabby trench coat wearing Jamie Madrox, a.k.a. Multiple Man. Now, Lorna Dane does, in fact, have some grape coupon for Guido. Uh, Jamie uh, struggles to open a jar of mayonnaise, and uh, this is going to become a bit. Lorna says, well, okay, look, the guy they're approaching to head up this whole operation, we have a history, you know. Jamie is still fumbling with the mayo jars. Stupid, stupid mayo jar? If Alex comes here, it'll be the first time in ages where there's nothing to keep us apart. You want I should hose you through down? That it? That's not the problem, although you might have to. Well, the hose is on the other side of the room, so make up your mind already. We've been so mucked up in mind and body so many times. How do I know there's any relationship to go back to, you know? Are, is she still talking to people in the room? I don't know. It's so weird. <laughs> uh, Jamie continues to fight with the mayonnaise jars, hitting it on the lid with a, his fist. <laughs> making a pock sound. Stupid freaking mayo jar? He creates a duplicate of himself to lend a little hand with that. Here, give me a hand with this. Sure. Uh, Guido suggests that if this Alex fella has passed on Lorna, that just clears the way for everyone else. 
not very, you know, sophisticated for a guy who uh, has just asked for gray Poupon mustard. I know, I use French mustard, but you're like a brute. He says, <laughs> a 90s guy like me says what he feels. I'm what you call sensitive. Of course, some block got a problem with that. And then Jamie hands him the mayonnaise jar. Can you open this stupid thing? Guido takes the jar and tries to unscrew the lid and fails. Mm-hmm. He says, then I'll de- de- defenestrate him, huh? What's with this stupid mayo jar? It... Then Lorna Dane makes it levitate out of Guido's hands and over to her. Because, you know, she's got magnetic powers. That's, that's, she's showing us right there. <laughs> she says, this is crazy. Even my magnetic powers can't pry the lid off. See, we told you she had magnetic powers. There was. <laughs> uh, Lorna gives up and grabs a newspaper because she needs to find a place to live. Seems that Jamie Madrox is fine because a friend left him their apartment while they travel in Europe. And I guess Guido can stay in an airplane hangar or a bus depot or wherever they can fit <laughs> a guy fit. that size. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Lorna thinks to herself she hopes Alex will take the job, and she's also petrified that he will. Mm. Now we zip on over to Genosha off the coast of Africa. That's uh, Madagascar, right? No, no, sorry. That's Gadosha. It's a marble. Oh. Thing. It's a totally different <laughs> island. Uh, and there's Alex, a strapping blonde fellow. That's uh, Alex Summers, by the way, Cyclops' younger brother, also known as Havoc. And Valerie Cooper is there on behalf of the U.S. government, and she's attempting to recruit Alex to X Factor, but Alex is happy where he's at. Yeah, he's the foreman of a project to build a mutant sanctuary, and this conversation takes place on a construction site. And he says, here, on the site of what used to be Genosha's citadel, we're working to build a mutate residence hall, a place where mutates can live together, developing a feeling of community. Valerie says, sounds like a ghetto. Are you crazy, Val? This is a modern facility with all the amenities, not some run-down... I didn't say tenement. I said ghetto, where people historically unwanted have been lumped together. Where's the equal rights in that? And they say there's no use for a liberal arts education. (laughs) Alex replies with, What are you implying? That the X-Men, when they were first brought together, mutants feared by society, were being ghettoized? I didn't imply it. You inferred it. In other words, you said it. I didn't. And that would be the downside of that liberal arts education right there. The worst. The worst. <laughs> now, a steel girder hanging down above, hanging above Val breaks loose and plummets toward her. Look, Alex, I think what you're doing here is well-intentioned. Swimming pools, health club, food facilities, more than the mutates ever dreamed of. But the U.S. government is looking at the big picture, and you should... Alex interrupts, raising a hand, sparking with power to the falling girder, and yells, Look out! Then, Wolfsbane bows onto the scene. Uh, She's a Scottish woman named Rain Sinclair. Though in her current form, she's a red werewolf with a punk rock hairdo. And don't forget she's Scottish, so we'll try and all. And here she says, <laughs> I've, I've got ye, Alex. Hold on. And she appears to punch Alex in the face to get him <laughs> clear of danger. Rain, are you nuts? Where do you come from? Val, move, cripes. Alex serves his full power against the girder, shattering it into pieces. This leaves Valerie looking a little beaten up afterward. Yes, he says, have you lost your mind? What, did, What? You, you think just because you're a government liaison, you're invulnerable? Why didn't you move? And she replies, 
Because I wanted to see it. When you act from instinct instead of thinking, you could make the right choice. So thinking is a, a bad thing. Right. Okay. All right. Let's check that box out. Right. Um, now back to Washington, D.C., and uh, we've got Quicksilver. He's been teleported there with Lockjaw. Quicksilver, of course, is Pietro Maximoff, at one time an evil mutant, and uh, he's a super speedster as well. Uh, he's also of Romany descent, we think. That changes a lot. So, yeah, I, I think currently he isn't, but I th- at, this, <laughs> at this time I believe he was. And he will be again. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is of Romany descent here, if you are interested. Uh, Lockjaw is one of the Inhumans, uh, the giant bulldog-looking one with a mustache and tuning fork coming out of his head. Uh, he's got the ability to teleport. Uh, he shows up right where people are protesting the Roxxon Corporation outside of a skyscraper. Pietro asks one of the protesters where he can find the X Factor, and the protester has never heard of him, which uh, sounds really promising to Pietro. Uh, we find out a bomb is about to go off in the Roxxon skyscraper. Yeah, some concerned guy says, Get out of here! Hurry! And Quicksilver replies with, I'm looking for X Factor. Yes! Didn't you hear me? Run! You want running? I'll show you running. <laughs> oh, he shows them running all right. Mm-hmm. Quicksilver runs around at super feed, speed to find the bomb, then dismantles it at super speed. And folks are all too happy to give him directions to X-Factor now. <laughs> now on Genosha again, uh, Alex and Rain are sitting in Valerie's stately hotel suite, waiting for Val to finish showering. Alex and Rain are nicely dressed and clean cut as like as well. Did she let them shower first? Like what, what, what happened? They, they, they all came from the uh, construction site. So anyway, <laughs> now the three of them have a conversation that reiterates the stuff that happened between them, almost scene for scene. Like, you know, the stuff that happened literally three pages ago. It really is. It's like... Uh, <laughs> now, Alex doesn't want to join X-Factor. No way, no how. His mind is made up no matter what Valerie says to him. And there's a knock at the door. And it's Alex's big brother, Cyclops, along with Professor X. Whoa. Uh-oh. Now, Rain's particularly happy to see Professor X, but... You know, they only want to take Alex outside to talk. Yeah, she, uh, she's literally like a fangirling, like, Professor X. Yeah. like, whatever, whatever, little girl, we're out of here. <laughs> we came for the blonde. Yeah. Uh, the other blonde. Uh, now, Valerie <laughs> uses this opportunity to take a dig at Rain. So, Rain, darling, can I offer you anything? A drink? Sandwich? Kibbles and bits. What an ass. They're really like a Jonathan Winters joke there. It's very mm. good. Uh, <laughs> Professor X now, he's talking to Alex and says, It's an excellent opportunity, Alex. With this breakup of Freedom Force, the government is in the position of having their first publicized association with mutants blowing up in their faces. Mutants have been a very high profile of late, thanks to the Gnosian incursion. A positive face on mutant government relations benefits all. I think part of their high profile had to do with Jim Lee on the art. Probably, yeah. yeah. Uh, Alex replies with, they want window dressing. Nice, police-cuddly mutants to take heat in difficult situations. Government muties. I'd be a smiling front man, an Uncle Atomic. Oh, no, he didn't. That was... Unfor- unfortunately, he did. Uh, <laughs> he continues, not interested. Scott pipes in and goes, Alex, it wouldn't be that way. Look, the president is very much behind this project, and considering his voter approval rate, that's powerful support. 
He's got a whopping 50% approval rating, the highest of any president, so that's great. Ever. Yeah, ever. That's now, terrific. <laughs> now, some of the president's poll numbers don't sway Alex's opinion. But then uh, Professor X mentions Lorna has joined X-Factor, and this gives Alex reason to pause. And so let's check back in on Lorna and the crew at X-Factor HQ, where Pietro has just shown up. He stumbles in weakly, then collapses into Lorna's waiting arms. Guido, get over here. We got company. And Guido just picks, like, plucks Pietro Literally. Easily. He's like holding him like a baby, you know, no like problem. Boink. Yep. So he just fainted dead away, huh? That's right. Put him here on the couch. Yeah, well, it was that or stick him on the mantle. I know a place you can stick them. I don't understand. Last I heard, Quicksilver was on the West Coast with that branch of the Avengers. What's he doing here? Not too well from the look of him. I think he's coming around, though. Indeed. Pietro wakes up looking right as rain. And, of course, Jamie Madrox is there. He's having a conversation <laughs> with Lockjaw. I was asking Lockjaw what was wrong with you, but, but he wasn't answering. I know it's hard for him to speak, but... And then Quicksilver answers with, speak. <laughs> What's so blasted funny? You've, <laughs> you've been talking to Ben Grimm, haven't you? I've played cards with him, yeah. He told me that Lockjaw was a deformed inhuman, not a dog. And Lorna hands Quicksilver the main age jar and says, Here, Speedy and Godala, open this while you explain. Gladly. Madrox, answer me this. If Lockjaw is a deformed inhuman, then why have the inhumans always talked to him like a dog? Wouldn't that be somewhat patronizing? Oh, yeah, and the inhumans are never patronizing. <laughs> perish the thought. <laughs> well, I guess, but then why? Because he's a dog. It was a joke, Madrox. Gordon and Karnak utilized Lockjaw's antenna as a high-powered transmitter as a prank on their old friend Grimm. And Grimm, thinking he'd find he'd found a soulmate, apparently swallowed it. You mean he hasn't? He still hasn't caught on? For heaven's sake, don't be the one to tell him. Uh, Lorna breaks up this mean girl's conversation for a little information. She says, "Pietro, what are you doing here? Don't take this wrong, but you look older than before, more tired." You're correct, Lorna. And my impulsive extinguishing of a bomb threat only aggravated my situation. That situation being that my power is killing me. And this is uh, this is with, like, every speedster across every publisher. Yeah, Their speed is always killing them. It seems so. to me the worst power to have if you want to have a long life. Yeah. Uh, Alex, Rain, and Valerie are flying en route to Washington, D.C., and I guess Professor X and Cyclops <laughs> took a bus. So they don't seem to be on the plane with them, but that's okay. They're on the, they're on the, uh, the steamer ship. <laughs> Alex uh, says... Uh, I'm pleased you decided to come along, Rain. Ah, of course I did, Alex. We're a team, you and me. Speaking of teams, she said by way of clever segue, here's photos of yours. Before we meet them here, we, uh, we do know uh, from reading that Rain has some sort of a bond to Alex. Uh, yeah. in, in the wake of the extinction agenda, they, uh, she has like a strange like devotion to him. So that's why she's a little clingy. Yeah, she, she wants to be with him at all and save him from everything. Absolutely. Now, let's meet the team. Valerie says, Guido, a former bodyguard for an off-world rocker named Lita Cheney. Built like a tank, Lorna Dane, a.k.a. Polaris, 
Recently, I acquired her mastery of magnetism. You've met. And by that, she means they've, they've done it. Jamie Madrox, the multiple man, creates replicas of himself. He's his own best friend. Any questions? Pietro is explaining his predicament back at X-Factor headquarters. He says, someone has done something to me. I don't know how, but they've turned my power against me. It really isn't much of an explanation. Pretty much we know exactly what we knew before. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> it started last week. Every time I use my velocity, my metabolism speeds up, accelerating my aging. I've learned that some evil individual's behind it, and he's based somewhere here in the Washington area. Jamie Madrax pipes in, How do you know? Because of the postcard I got in the mail. Here, Madrox, read it. Dear Mr. Silver, <laughs> I've turned your power against you. You'll never find me. Sincerely, an evil individual. And it's got a DC postmark. Quick, look up individual comma evil in the phone book. You'll probably find yes. him. Uh, Lorna says, that's terrible. What would make someone do something like this? You ask me, I blame society. It's always good to blame society. Right. Uh, Pietro explains that he's parted ways with the West Coast Avengers, so he figured, why not join up with X-Factor? Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Uh, just then, Valerie, Alex, and Rain show up. Lorna runs over to give Alex a big hug, much to Rain's disgust. Mm -hmm. Quicksilver can't open the mayonnaise jar, and he tosses it over to Alex. Uh, Alex lets loose a bit of a you know, flash of power, which sends the jar bouncing around the room ultimately into Valerie's hands. Oh, you people. Honestly, give it here. And so she wraps the lid of the jar against the wall with a bonk. You just wrap it a couple of times. There. Open. The mayonnaise is frothing disgustingly over the rim of the jar. Who would use that now? But it, Never. It, it did bounce around the room a bunch of times, so there's it's reason. It's true. Uh, later, at Jamie Madrox's borrowed apartment... <laughs> I, I, I got them good. This little unbreakable jar I whipped up on Muir Island, complete with an unremovable lid, except when my little remote control device allows it to be opened. If only he had time to add the spring-loaded snakes, they could have really made I it know. something. <laughs> <laughs> Quicksilver thinks inhumans can pull in practical jokes. He hasn't seen jokes until he's crossed swords with Jamie Madrox. And then there's a knock at the door and Jamie goes to answer it. Yes, can I help you? They is interrupted by the cocking of a shotgun and three blasts into his body. Jamie flies backward through the window and falls to the pavement, and there he lay, seemingly dead, to be continued. Spoiler alert. He's not dead. You know, he, we, we do remember that he is the multiple man. He can make multiple bodies. Right, without, without delving too deeply, that's, uh, he, <laughs> he works himself out of that predicament pretty easily next issue, or conveniently, and, let's say. And, and it won't be the only time. No, that's, that's <laughs> kind of his thing. Although he does, sure. he, does uh, he gets very upset when his uh, other bodies die and he can't reabsorb yes. them. But, does, uh, yeah, that, that's, it's, this is a, a good comic, you know, it read in context, right? Sure, uh, absolutely. You, I, you can, I don't think you can just pick this up and say, like, this will be exactly like a comic from today, or, but totally from its its time, and it's it's good on, on those merits. Sure. Uh, you got a lot of the 
uh, squinty face, but it's not too mon- too many lines on the face. Is that, is that would you say that's accurate? Well, it's it's funny because I when I was reading this back in you know the early '90s, I really did not like Strowman's art. Yeah. But uh, when I look back at it now, it's somehow aged the best <laughs> of, of everything of that era. Of a lot of the guys uh, that era, and I, I the think, X-Men era. Yeah. <laughs> what What's crazy is, and I didn't read this devotedly, but I I remember it existing and seeing it and basically dismissing it as being more. You know, image guys type art. More X stuff. Uh, yeah. Seeing it now, though, you can, like I say, you can see that it is kind of maybe a cut above some of the other guys where they were at the time. But I hmm. see more where it is in synergy with that with that style. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's it was interesting visually to look at, but it it works. The storytelling, the plotting is actually quite straightforward. The characters are a little silly. Uh, I think we sure. can say some of them, you know what I mean? A little maybe uh, goofy, but that's okay. Uh, it, it's a good time. I had a good time with this yeah, book. And absolutely. Uh, probably will cruise into the rest of X Factor when uh, I break all my limbs someday. <laughs> or at least the next 19 issues of it. Maybe. Uh, yeah, that's right. Speaking of which, let's get back to Peter David. Uh, he, he wrote X Factor from issues 70 through 89. Uh, that was September 1991 through April 1993, including, including a fantastic issue that I would love to cover one of these days, where uh, the members of X Factor visit Doc Sampson for some psychoanalysis. Oh, It's a... Uh, it's actually, we could probably do a special with uh, two issues where they do that, because when David came back in the mid-2000s, they, they went for another uh, visit. So That's right. that could well, be a fun I, one I, to cover. I know he did come back. Well, you know, we did just set the X-Factor table, so I think now we can crack we can open delve. other issues. Yeah. Hmm. Now, uh, the book was plagued by ex-family crossovers that interrupted the flow of the narrative. Uh, Peter David was about to explore an abortion-related story where the mutant gene could be determined in utero, and a parent could decide whether or not to uh, continue with the pregnancy. Uh, He would eventually do that story when he returned to the title over a decade later. Uh, Now, David's other Marvel Comics work in the late 80s and early 90s included runs on Wolverine, uh, also the New Universe series Mark Hazard Merck, and uh, ju- also Justice, uh, this run on the uh, original X Factor, as well as the futuristic series Spider-Man 2099. As mentioned, David left X Factor after 19 issues, and uh, he would write the first 44 issues of Spider-Man 2099 before quitting the book to protest the firing of his editor, Joey Cavalieri. Cavalieri. Cavalieri? That's sure. Right. I think that's right. <laughs> I, I, at least I didn't say Calamari. Um, <laughs> Now, Spider-Man 2099 would be canceled two issues later with issue number 46, cover dated August 1996. From there, the 2099 line was folded into the 2099 World of Tomorrow series, which would limp on for eight issues, uh, dating uh, September 96 through April 97. Well, they tried. That's nice. Why not? Um, (laughs) We'll pop back a few years. In 1993, David had a much publicized, at least for, you know, comics media, uh, and also somewhat embarrassing public debate debate with a former collaborator of his, Todd McFarlane. It was held October 8th at the first annual Comic Fest 93 and was moderated by another of David's collaborators, George Perez. It was made clear right off the bat that both debaters had different ideas on what was about to go down. Uh, Todd entered dressed like a prize fighter, uh, <laughs> and uh, and even uh, people have said that he came out to the uh, Rocky theme. Um, 
He was also flanked by cheerleaders and wow. a dude in a bad rock costume, even though that was a Rob Liefeld thing. Yeah, but they had the costume. The, I mean, yes. the swagger. It was right an there, image thing. Yeah. Young Todd swagger right there. Now, uh, Peter arrived dressed like a normal <laughs> civilian. Yep. Uh, now, we, won't, we don't want to go too, too deep into this debate because it might make for a pretty fun segment on a future episode of Weird Comics History when we finally do get around to discuss the launch and rise of Image Comics. Yeah, I'm, I'm having fun just hearing a little bit you told me there, so. <laughs> I want to get into that later on. Uh, in 1996, uh, Peter created Nickelodeon TV show Space Cases with Send Him to the Cornfield Boy, Bill Mummy. Also from uh, Lost in Space, right? That was his thing. Yes. Will Robinson, yes. That's right. And uh, that set him up for a little while financially. But he mm-hmm. didn't, didn't stop working. He had a nice long uh, celebrated run on Aquaman, issues number 0 to 46, plus annuals. That was August 94 to July 98 cover. This would be the long-haired, bearded, one-handed take on the character with the hook hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, He also did a real good run on Supergirl issues 1 through 80 plus issue 1 million as part of that crossover. Uh, September 1996 to May 2003 covers. This is the Linda Danvers Fallen Angel take, sort of like the Matrix loses her memory, thinks she's Linda Danvers, Mm. a whole complex thing happens. Uh, Young Justice issues number 1 through 55 plus 1 million. September 98 through May 2003. Uh, just wasn't Pete's month, 2003. <laughs> Seems like all of his books just got yoinked at that point. The same month, yeah. There must have been a culling going on right around then. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, junior high is to Young Justice, as high school is to Teen Titans, like the younger hero team. Hmm. Uh, David's early 2000s work includes runs on two volumes of Captain Marvel, which debuted in 2000 2002, as well as Before the Fantastic Four, colon, Reed Richard limited series. Also, you decide. Something we, we talked about quite a bit. And for to listen to that uh, on the Gemis era Marvel Comics stunt, check out Weird Comics History episode 10 in the archives. We had a great time with that. So oh, yeah, it was a blast. Definitely check it out. In 2003, David began writing another creator-owned comic, Fallen Angel, for DC Comics, which he created in order to make use of plants he had devised for Supergirl after the Many Happy Returns storyline. That same year, he wrote a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series for Dreamwave that tied into the animated television series from the same year. DC canceled Fallen Angel after 20 issues, but David restarted the title at IDW Publishing at the end of 2005, and probably as part of that same deal, his other work included Spike Old Times One-Shot and Spike vs. Dracula miniseries, both based on the character from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer television series. Now, uh, we have X-Factor. We mentioned it came back. It would eventually be canceled and be relaunched as all-new X-Factor when Marvel was releasing every new title with all-new in front of it. Uh-huh. Uh, and this was a series with artist Carmine D. Giandomenici and Domenico. <laughs> uh, and this was part of the all-new Marvel Now initiative. Uh, the opening storyline, which continues the events from issue 260 of the previous series, establishes the new corporate-sponsored version of the team and includes Polaris, Quicksilver, as well as Gambit. Um, on December 29, 2012, David unfortunately suffered a stroke while on vacation in Florida. Uh, six months after the stroke, David had completed his physical therapy. Uh, he'd revealed in uh, January of 2015 that he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes a year earlier. Yikes. Uh, yeah, and a rough, rough couple of years there. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, in July 2014, David returned to Spider-Man 2099, writing the second volume of Spider-Man 2099 with artist Will Sliney. Uh, with this series, David would uh, again be writing two series. He had his X-Factor and Spider-Man 2099 after having previously done so over decades prior, over the, the decades prior. Mm. Uh, in 2015, Simon and Schuster published Stanley's autobiographical graphic novel called Amazing, Fantastic, Incredible, which uh, David co-wrote. Uh, in March 2017, David revealed on his blog that the IRS was demanding $88,000 in unpaid taxes. And so he started a GoFundMe campaign to raise the money from friends and fans, which raised sixty-eight grand by April 12th. Uh, in April 2017, Marvel premiered the monthly series Ben Riley, the Scarlet Spider, with uh, David as writer. Uh, Peter David is married and has four children. And I think that comic is still coming out. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. <laughs> I'll be honest, it's uh, Marvel's just had the legacy change. It's hard to know what's going to happen. God only knows. Now. But yeah, I think it is. Uh, I mean, we're talking about April of this year, so I would yeah. I would hope it was still to be on the out. But anyway, <laughs> uh, let's uh, wrap up on Larry Stroman. Uh, initially, he was brought on to X Factor as a fill-in artist, but was soon offered X Factor as a regular assignment and given approval to redesign the character's costumes and overall appearance as he saw fit. He was a regular artist on the series from issues 71 to 81. Following the end of his run on that title, he drew a number of other books, such as Wolverine, Punisher, and Dark Stars. In 1993, Stroman and writer Todd Johnson co-created the Image Comics series Tribe, which is the largest-selling African-American-created comic of all time. Sales for issue one exceeded the one million mark, which is mm. something else. Sure. Uh, after the title was canceled in the Image shakeup of 1994, Stroman and Johnson founded Axis Comics to continue publication of Tribe, but the co company closed after publishing only nine issues. In a press release, Strowman cited a change in his working relationship with Johnson, an increased production cost, creator of apathy, and unforeseen market factors like creator, creator apathy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Strowman's subsequent work in the 1990s included illustrating Wildcats, Covert Action Team's annual number one for Jim Lee's Wildstorm, pr uh, Productions slash Image, and a number of Marvel titles including X-Men The Early Years, Excalibur, and Heroes Reborn Iron Man. Stroman's 2000s work includes various installments of The Recurring, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe reference series, including the official handbook for the Marvel Universe colon Teams 2005, and two issues of the 2000, 2007 book, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe colon A through Z colon update, as Ooh. well as What If X-Men colon Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire and Black Panther Annual Number 1 with Reginald Hudlin and Ken Lashley. In 2008, Strowman was reunited with his X-Factor collaborator, Peter David, illustrating issues 33 to 36 and 38 of Volume 3 of that series. Strowman subsequently illustrated the three-issue miniseries X-Men, The Times and Life of Lucas Bishop miniseries, and Thunderbolts number 144, both in 2009. Mm-hmm. Oof, okay. Now, creators out of the way, let's talk about the X-Men. Something very simple, right? Uh, very this simple is, This will be quick. Yeah. This will be quick. Uh, the the X-Men are mutants, a subspecies of human that have special powers and abilities. They're hated and feared by the world. Uh, they were, And they initially uh, convened at Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Children in Westchester, New York. Uh, Professor X is also, naturally, a mutant. The t first team would debut in the X-Men number one, September 1963, 
Free by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. But hold on, Chris. There's Whoa. tremendous controversy afoot that we have to address. Huge huh? comics-shaking controversy. Uh, many have pointed out the similarities between the X-Men and Arnold Drake and Bruno Primiani's Doom Patrol, which was published by DC Comics. They're both headed by guys in wheelchairs. Both teams consist of super-powered outcasts from society. Both teams have a nearly indestructible, tough-talking orange guy on the team. Both teams have a guy that flies around in a semi-corporeal state, you know, Human Torch and uh, the uh, Negative Man. Uh, Doom Patrol had the world's strangest heroes as part of the front cover banner. X-Men had the strangest superheroes of all. And Doom Patrol fought against the Brotherhood of Evil. The X-Men fought against the Brotherhood of Evil mutants. Uh, the Doom Patrol debuted in My Greatest Adventure number 80. That was June 1963. So it sounds like about four or five months even before. No, three months, I'm sorry. Sure. Uh, about three months before X-Men, yeah. Now, this point has generally been regarded as the reason why X-Men couldn't have possibly copied Doom Patrol because, you know, the time between the issues was far too short. Uh, but many writers and artists work for both Marvel and DC, and, you know, it was it's a fraternity. They all know each other. Yeah. Uh, Arnold Drake had become convinced at some point that Stan Lee stole his idea. Uh, shortly before his death, however, Drake became more conciliatory. He says... Since we were working in the same vineyards, and if you do enough of that stuff, sooner or later, you will kind of look like you're imitating each other. Yeah, which I, I think we both agree that we tend to fall on that side, you know? Like, yeah. You know, you're all writing superheroes. You're eventually going to start to come up with the same type of ideas. Sure. Anyway. Absolutely. Uh, but back back to the X-Men here. We have, uh, after the success of the Fantastic Four, Stan Lee wanted to create another group of superheroes, but didn't want to have to go and explain how they all got their powers. Uh, in two. 2004, Stanley would recall, I couldn't have everybody bitten by a radioactive spider or exposed to gamma ray explosion, and I took the cowardly way out. I said to myself, why don't I just say they're mutants? They were born that way. In a 1987 interview, Jack Kirby said, The X-Men, I did the natural thing there. What would you do with mutants who were just plain boys and girls and certainly not dangerous? You school them. You develop their skills. So I gave them a teacher, Professor X. Of course, it was the natural thing to do. Instead of disorienting or alienating people who were different from us, I made the X-Men part of the human race, which they were. Possibly, radiation, if it's beneficial, may create mutants that'll save us instead of doing us harm. I feel that if we train the mutants our way, they'll help us. And not only help us, but achieve a measure of growth in their own sense. And so, we could all live together. Lee devised the series after Marvel publisher Martin Goodman turned down the initial name The Mutant, stating that readers would not know what a mutant was. The original explanation for the name, provided by Xavier in the X-Men number one, is that mutants possess an extra power, one which ordinary humans do not. That's why I call my students X-Men, for extra power. Although I think pretty much everyone assumed it's because his name is Professor X. That's why I always <laughs> thought it was. Uh, <laughs> early X-Men issues introduced the original team composed, like we said, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Angel, and Iceman, along with their arch enemy Magneto and his Brotherhood of Evil Mutants featuring Mastermind, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, and Toad. A new member of the X-Men named Mimic was added in issue number 19, but he soon left during his, due to his temporary loss of power and permanent loss of interest. Yeah, he, he wasn't a mutant anyway, so oh, he, he, can, he can just go pound salt. Yeah, good, good. Uh, <laughs> 
Now, the uh, title would lag in sales behind Marvel's other comic franchises. Uh, in 1969, writer Roy Thomas and illustrator Neil Adams rejuvenated the comic book and gave regular roles to two recently introduced characters. Those were Havoc, uh, otherwise known as Alex Summers, who had been introduced to, who had been introduced by Roy Thomas before Adams began work on the comic, and Lorna Dane, who we also know as Polaris, mm-hmm. who's and she was created by Arnold Drake and Jim Steranko. Uh, however, these later X-Men issues failed to attract sales, and Marvel stopped producing new stories with issue number 66, uh, later reprinting a number of the older stories uh, through issues 67 through 93. Yeah, so we're, right, we're talking about a comic property right here that's dead in the water. Yeah. That they're just, they're just filling a space with it, and, you know, they, they didn't think it would If something come better would have come along, they would have They would have snapped it up. So, yep. I, you know, this really does become quite a story. But anyway, I want to talk a minute about uh, something I like to call Professor Martin Luther Xavier and Magneto <laughs> X. Now, some fans, particularly in the 1980s, claim the animosity between Professor X and Magneto, two rivals seeking essentially the same thing. Justice for Mutant Kind, Deliberation of Mutant Kind, was an allegory for similar rivalry between civil rights activist Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. This would have been a hot topic at just when the X-Men were created in 1963 when that rivalry was actually happening. Uh, Stan Lee said that the civil rights movement of the 1960s inspired the X-Men, and MLK's, MLK's I Have a Dream speech did happen in 1963. Still... Martin Luther King was a pacifist, while Professor X sends his team to do battle in every issue. Uh, Malcolm X was a separatist, while Magneto wants mutant kind to dominate the planet, at least in these early issues. Yeah. Uh, X-Men is as much about Cold War paranoia and the relationship between Professor X and Magneto, to me, uh, is a little more like the one between John F. Kennedy and Khrushchev. Uh, you know, not to deny Stan Lee, but Stan Lee tends to say... The right thing at the time. You ever noticed that? Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. But so instead of a one-to-one analog, we feel like the X-Men was more a product of several things happening at the time. It was really a, a civil rights movement, and there was definitely a change in uh, society and in politics. And I think the X-Men reflected all of that, with a focus on bigotry and disenfranchisement. But all, all, I, all I meant this part to be, I think the analog of Professor X to MLK. Magneto to to Malcolm X, it, it falls apart. It's not perfect. Quickly. Yeah, yeah, once you once you look at it. But anyway, that's just yeah. Because I look at Professor X as a good guy, and I look at Magneto as a bad guy, and I think that's a I, th- I think that's where it 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 is. And I, I think a lot of uh, a lot of the hindsight is convenient. Yeah. And like you said, uh, Stan sometimes says what you know. Well, he's you know, say. without getting, I think we can talk about it maybe a little later. But in the eighties, Magneto's you know backstory was softened. Sure. In many ways, he became more of a sympathetic character, and I think that allowed people to see him as kind of like a that kind, you know, a noble, a noble, yeah. a noble, a guy with a noble cause who maybe doesn't go about things. Not much. just a lunatic. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, that's that's just a, some food for thought, folks. Certainly, certainly, and we we do, we definitely love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, but first. More X-Men. In in Giant Size X-Men number one, this was 1975, uh, writer Len Wein and artist Dave Cockrum introduced a new team that starred in the revival of the X-Men, beginning with issue number 94. Uh, Unlike in the early issues of the original series, uh, the new team was not made up of teenagers, and they also uh, had more diverse global background. Mm -hmm. Uh, Each was from a different country with varying cultural
cultural and philosophical beliefs, and they were all already well-versed in using their mutant powers, uh, several being experienced even in combat. Uh, now, the this all-new, all-different X-Men, they were led by Cyclops from the original team and consisted of the newly created Colossus, who was from Soviet Russia, uh, Nightcrawler, who was from West Germany, Storm, who hailed from Kenya, and Thunderbird, a Native American of Apache descent. I think he lived here in Arizona, actually. Um, and uh, three previously introduced characters was uh, Banshee uh, from Ireland, Sunfire from Japan, and Wolverine from Canada. Now, however, this team would not remain intact for all that long because Sunfire quit because he's a jerk. Um, and he was never really accepted by the other members anyway. Uh, Thunderbird would die in their like very first field mission. Uh, <laughs> Banshee was he was older, so he uh, he was just a reservist after the first mission. Um, but filling the vacancy, a revamped Jean Grey soon rejoined the X-Men under her new persona, like we mentioned earlier, of Phoenix. Yeah, and hearing about the publishing plan happening, it gives you more information of why that even happened, you know? Like, sure. we need to stick her in here, but she has to be something better. Anyway, uh, this revived series, series was illustrated by Dave Cockrum and later by John Byrne and written by Chris Claremont. The 1980s began with the comic's best-known story arc, which we mentioned, the Dark Phoenix Saga. Other important storylines included Days of Future Past, the saga of Deathbird and the Brood, the discovery of the Morlocks, the invasion of the Dire Wraiths, and the Trial of Magneto, as well as the original graphic novel X-Men God Loves, Man Kills. By the early 1980s, X-Men was Marvel's top-selling comic title. Its sales were such that distributors and retailers began using an X-Men index, rating each comic book publication by how many orders it garnered compared to that month's issue of X-Men. It's insane. Crazy, like about 10 years earlier, they were about, really, it was about to be canceled. Done. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the growing popularity of Uncanny X-Men and the rise of comic book specialty stores led to the introduction of a number of ongoing spin-off series nicknamed X-Books. The first of these was The New Mutants, debuting in Marvel Graphic Novel Number 4, December 1982. Characters, that is, soon followed by Alpha Flight, debuting in X-Men Number 120, in April 1979, though their solo book would start in 1983. X-Factor, debuting in X-Factor Number 1, February 1986. Excalibur, debuting in Excalibur Special Edition 1987, that's Kitty Pride and Colossus. Captain Britain. Captain yep. Britain over in uh, the UK, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a solo Wolverine title. This was September to December 1982. Yeah, that was the miniseries uh, with uh, Frank Miller art. Yeah, um, it's coming back, I hear. But anyway. How about that? Uh, now, when Claremont conceived a story arc uh, called The Mutant Massacre, which was too long to run in the monthly X-Men title, editor Louise Simonson decided to have it overlap into several other X-Books. Uh, the story was a major financial success, and when the, the next year's Fall of the Mutants was similarly successful, the marketing department declared that the X-Men lineup would hold such crossovers Annually, yeah, they sure did. <laughs> and if only they could keep them to just one a year. Imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> throughout the '80s, Uncanny X-Men was written solely by Chris Claremont and was illustrated for long runs by John Byrne, Dave Cockrum, Paul Smith, John Romita Jr., and Mark Silvestri. Additions to the team during this time were uh, Kitty Pride, also known as Shadowcat, and Sprite, and Ariel, and a whole bunch of different names. Uh, <laughs> The Disco Mutant Dazzler, Forge, Longshot, Psylocke, Rogue, Rachel Summers slash Gray slash whatever, uh, also known as Phoenix, and uh, Jubilee. 
uh, Professor X would relocate to outer space to be with Lalandra, the Majestrix of the Shi'ar Empire in 1986. Uh, people said that Claremont didn't like writing Professor X, so yeah. he, uh, he sent him away. Shoved him and, away. <laughs> and in his absence... Magneto joined the X-Men, and he would become the director of the Young New Mutants. People weren't uh, thrilled by that, by the way. It was it was kind of a uh, it was kind of controversial. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I, I I dug how it worked out in hindsight. Yeah. I wasn't reading it off the shelf at the time, though. Um, now this period also introduced uh, included the emergence of the Hellfire Club, which was that clandestine organization right. named after uh, a British television show. Uh, uh, the arrival of the mysterious Madeline Pryor and the villains Apocalypse, Mr. Sinister, Mojo, and Sabretooth. And then right around now we enter Jim Lee and really the image, imminent image revolution. But mm-hmm. in 1991, Marvel revised the entire lineup of X-Books concentered on the launch of a second X-Men series, simply titled X-Men. With the return of Xavier and the original X-Men to the team, the roster was split into two strike forces. Cyclops' blue team, which is chronicled in X-Men, and Storm's gold team, which was in the uncanny X-Men. Its first issues were written by long-standing X-Men writer Chris Claremont and drawn and co-plotted by Jim Lee. Retailers pre-ordered over 8.1 million copies of X-Men number one, covered mm-hmm. in October 1991, generating and selling nearly $7 million, though Yikes. retailers probably sold closer to 3 million copies, which tells you what those copies were selling for, uh, <laughs> making it, according to Guinness Book of World Records, the best-selling comic book of all time. Guinness presented honors to Claremont at the 2010 San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, Rob Liefeld, who picked up Penciling New Mutants with issue 86, that was in February 1990, kicked off a new title, X-Force No. 1, August 91 cover, written by Fabian Nicieza. This was the characters from the New Mutants, but led by Liefeld's creative character, uh, Cable. And that actually had the uh, the Guinness record until uh, X-Men Volume 2 broke, broke wow. that record wow. a couple months later. Just a couple of months, wow. They were, yep. just, they were just breaking records left and right. Left and right. Uh, now, uh, friction developed between the creative teams, and editor Bob Harris would side with Jim Lee, as well as Uncanny X-Men artist Will Spatasio, in an argument over plotting. Uh, this would lead to Claremont leaving the X-Men after issue three of the set of Volume 2, and this ended a 16-year unbroken streak of writing. At least he went out with a bang, right? Mm, nah, not really. Not so. Not really so much. He gets a tiny blurb with his initials in the very last panel of X Men number three, and <laughs> yeah. that's it. But uh, I'm wow. sure it must have been a very nice paycheck, either way. Probably. Uh, now Marvel replaced Claremont briefly with his old friend John Byrne, who scripted both books for a few issues, and that you know, just a few issues because uh, it, it didn't work out. They hate each other. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can listen to our uh, John Byrne episode. Right, that was a good place uh, to listen to. Now, Byrne was then replaced by Nisiesa and Scott Lobdell, who would take over the majority of writing duties for the X-Men until Lee's own departure a month later when that whole Image Comics thing went right. down. And, uh, you know, you got to figure in hindsight, you know, Bob Harris is probably really glad to have these guys back, right? Yeah, I know. Like, like, literally months later, the same year they all pull yep. out. It's like, damn it. <laughs> now, uh, Jim Lee's X-Men designs would be the basis for much of the X-Men animated series, as well as the action figure line, even going into several Capcom video games. 
Yeah, now going into the 1990s, they really tamped down and reduced the number of X-Books and kept it very... No, actually, they kept it very sleek. Yeah. <laughs> it saw an even greater explosion of X-Books with numerous ongoing series and miniseries running concurrently. X-Book crossovers continue to run annually, annually with Inferno in 1988 to 89, The Extinction Agenda in 1990, The Muir Island Saga in 1991, Executioner's Song in 1992, Fatal Attractions in 1993, Phalanx Covenant in 1994, Legion Quest, Age of Apocalypse, those are two events in 1995, Onslaught in 1996, and Operation Zero Tolerance in 1997. Fans complained about it, but the money kept rolling in thick and fast, so they never thought Mm -hmm. to stop it. Uh, The Age of Apocalypse in particular is a beast worth talking about, and it will almost certainly be the subject of an upcoming Weird Comics History or Cosmic Treadmill. Chris and I have actually... Spoken about doing it uh, at some point. In short, though, uh, Professor Xavier's son, David Holler, also known as Legion, traveled back in time to kill Magneto before he could become the evil jerk we all know. Unfortunately for him, the altruistic Charles Xavier sacrificed himself, saving Magneto's life. The chain reaction from Xavier's death led to a world ruled by Apocalypse. Also, for four months, all the X titles were canceled and replaced. Uncanny X-Men became Astonishing X-Men. X-Men Volume 2 became Amazing X-Men. X-Factor became Factor X. X-Force became uh, Gambit and the Externals. That sounds natural, right? Sure, yeah, that's nice. (laughs) Externals. Uh, Generation X became Generation Next. Excalibur became Excalibur. Libre. (laughs) Exactly, spelt that way. Uh, Wolverine became Weapon X. Cable became... X-Men, which is probably the best title in a way, and X-Men Unlimited became X-Men Chronicles. Now, Xavier's New Mutants grew up and became X-Force, and then the next generation of students began with Generation X. This featured Jubilee and other teenage mutants led and schooled by Banshee, as well as former villainess Emma Frost at her Massachusetts Academy. We actually did a treadmill on uh, Generation X number one. That's right. Last year, at some point, I don't remember the number, but it, it's in the archives. It's in there. Uh, yep. We, we should. I should have it in there, but it's not. Sorry, folks. It, it's it's not a hard thing to find. No. Uh, in uh, 1998, Excalibur and X Factor ended, with uh, fan favorites from the former being folded into the flagship teams, and the latter being replaced with. Mutant X, it's a <laughs> series that starred Havoc stranded in a parallel universe. Um, Howard Mackey was writing X-Factor at the time, and he continued on to Mutant X, and it wound up being one of the most difficult series to get through. Uh, it's when you're uh, when you're a completionist and you're really hating life. Yeah, well, it's, it's, um, it sounds like they separated him from the X-Men fun. Yeah. Now you're watching him drift through. It's like Legion Lost. It sounds like anyway. Yeah, and he, and he's married to a like a he's got a vampire storm. He's married to Madeline Pryor. He's got a son. It's it, it's not very good. Oh wow. Um, now throughout the mid to late '90s, Marvel would uh, launch a number of solo series, including Deadpool, Cable. Bishop, the last X-Man, Maverick, Quicksilver, X-Man, which we mentioned uh, that actually survived the Age of Apocalypse, and Gambit. But few of the series would survive the decade. I'm not sure if any of them did. No. <laughs> Deadpool and Cable did. Um, now, there was an, that was also that incident in 1996 when Marvel filed for bankruptcy, yeah. which probably put a damper on a probably, lot of them. Probably ruined a lot of these series. But <laughs> Yes. Now, in the year 2000, Chris Claremont returned to Marvel and was put back on the primary X-Men titles during 
the uh, revolution re- revamp here. This was a uh, X Men Volume Two, which he left at issue number three. He came back for issue number one hundred. Whoa! Although he uh, he he did ghostwrite a few issues in between, but oh, okay. no no worries about that. Um, now this was just in time for the X Men feature film to hit theaters, and uh, definitely the most <laughs> opportune time to make the books totally inaccessible for a potential new reader. I'd been reading the X-Men for over 10 years at this point, and I was lost, so I could not imagine. I mean, none of none of the characters from the movie were, were really being featured. Uh, you had, like, Psylocke fighting the Twisted Sisters on motorcycles. It was, it was ridiculous. I mean, it's, the movie's uh, right there, you know what I mean? Just right like, there. Just grab they, those they changed, characters from that. They changed the logo to look like the movie, but they didn't make it the, the inside look like it. Uh, he would later be removed from the two flagship titles in 2001, and he was shifted over to his own vanity spin-off series called uh, Extreme X-Men, and that's X-Dream. Of course, of course. How could it be anything else? Uh, no. That thing has got real weird when writer Grant Morrison took over X-Men and changed its title to New X-Men. Uh, the number issue number one had a cover date in May 2001 and was drawn by Frank Quitely. Uh, sorry, issue number 116. As as <laughs> special editing bulletin has just come in. Uh, Morrison <laughs> Morrison brought about a radical shift to the title, beginning with E is for Extinction, where a new villain, Cassandra Nova, destroys Genosha, killing 16 million mutants. He's also brought Emma Frost onto the team proper, and Professor X reveals himself as a mutant to the public. Emma was given a secondary mutation which gave her diamond-hard skin, and she was something of a stand-in for the now-dead, and remember, at Marvel, dead means dead, Colossus, who is not dead. But anyway, uh, and there was even <laughs> even crazier stuff than that, something about psychic adultery, right? That was, it, got, mm-hmm. it got very weird, but what people usually remember has to do with Zorn and Magneto, never in the same place at the same time. Uh, Zorn is a character that first appeared in New X-Men Annual in 2001 by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely. Uh, originally de- depicted as a Chinese mutant with a star for a brain, he is eventually revealed to be the X-Men's nemesis Magneto in disguise at the climax of Morrison's run. After Magneto was thought dead during one of Morrison's final story arcs, Planet X, drawn by Phil Jimenez. Magneto had died during the Genosian genocide during E is for Extinction. Following the events of the Magneto War, he was granted the presidency of the sovereign nation of Genosha. Yes, he threatened to turn the uh, planet off its axis, and uh, the UN decided, let's just give him a country to run. I, I would, you know. That that seems the best thing to do. Uh, this the uh, Zorn reveal was actually spoiled for me at the comic store. Oh. Um, I went in to buy my books, and the guy behind the counter is like, "Hey, you believe what happened uh, with Magneto?" And I'm like, "I'm holding the I'm, book right I'm now. Hold, how could I? How could I know what happened?" <laughs> it was Gosh. pretty bad. After you know, two years of buildup. That's was, what I'm saying. He's probably right there watching you buy all the freaking. Yeah. Stuff. Now, Morrison did intend Magneto to be Zorn from the very start here. Uh, Morrison stated in an interview after he left New X-Men, he says, and I'm not going to do a Morrison impression, he (laughs) says, in my opinion, there really shouldn't have been an actual Zorn. He had to be fake. That was the cruel point of him. Marvel, of course, retconned this immediately after Morrison's departure, you know, a true show of maturity, uh, and then made things much more complicated by creating a twin brother for Zorn, and a motive for impersonating Magneto that was dubious at best and ridiculous at worst. <laughs> um, 
in 2001, Ultimate X-Men, set the Marvel's revised imprint, uh, was also launched, while Chuck Austin began his controversial, quote, run on Uncanny X-Men. Uh, several short-lived spin-offs and miniseries started featuring uh, several X-Men in solo series around this time, such as Another Try with Gambit, uh, Nightcrawler, Rogue, Emma Frost, and Mystique the latter two being part of Marvel's Tsunami line. Uh, Another series, Exiles, started at the same time, and that would uh, run until December 2007. That was uh, initially started as a a Blink um, ongoing series uh, that they wooed uh, Judd Winnick over to write, and he left shortly into into the uh, run. But it it lasted Uh, quite a little while there. It did, it did. Yeah, he stayed, I think, for the first, like, uh, year or two. Um, Now, this would lead into uh, New Exiles in January 2008 and was written by Chris Claremont. There was also an Exiles Volume 2 that ran for about five issues a little after that. Uh, Cable and Deadpool's books, they were transformed into Soldier X and Agent X, respectfully, before their adventures were merged into one book called, get this, Cable and Deadpool. Hey, good title. (laughs) And that was written by Fabian Niciesa. Uh, Rumor had it that the name changes were due to Rob Liefeld sniffing around for royalties. Uh, Worth mentioning that also during this time, X-Force became Ecstatics. Yeah, Um, I mean, he says there, though, that the the contract stipulated that royalties kicked in after, I don't know know exactly, 100,000 bucks. And they weren't even reaching that, so he wasn't due royalties anyway, but who knows, maybe they were hoping for the best. (laughs) They were, they were thinking high. Yeah. Um, now, uh, following Morrison's departure, a third and the slowest moving core X-Men title, Astonishing X-Men, was launched, and that was written by Joss Whedon and featured art by John Cassidy. Uh, most of Morrison's plots and concepts were flushed. Oh, yeah, and Marvel's dead means dead mandate was lifted when Colossus <laughs> was resurrected to be part of the team. So I guess it pays to be a TV guy slumming it in comics. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, now, Marvel Tsunami's New Mutants, Volume 2, would uh, become New X-Men, Academy X, and that focused on the lives of the new young mutants at the Institute, uh, featuring several of the mentor muties forming their own teams of mentee muties, uh, perhaps most notably Emma Frost forming a new team called the Hellions. In 2004, Marvel decided there were too many mutants in the world, so they had Scarlet Witch take care of that in House of M. She uttered no more mutants, which dwindled the mutant population down from the hundreds of thousands to a mere 198. Don't worry, though, most of the popular ones got to keep their powers. Uh, there would also be no new mutants, was the idea that would just be held yeah. at that 198 until, in 2007, the Messiah Complex storyline saw the first mutant birth since House of M in hope, as well as the destruction of the Xavier Institute, again, and the disbanding of the X-Men, again. (laughs) It spun the new volumes of X-Force, a team led by Wolverine and Cable, who was tasked with safely raising hope to adulthood in the future while being trailed by heel-turned-bishop. X-Men was renamed X-Men Legacy, at which its offset focused on, uh, from its outset focused on Professor X, Rogue, and Gambit. Under Cyclops' leadership, the X-Men later reformed an uncanny X-Men number 500, their new base located in San Francisco. Yes, they were actually welcomed there with open arms. It was a 
there was a uh, a different take on. Well, the, the Teen Titans said were already there is probably right. So they just that's true. Right that's in. true. They, <laughs> they they were grandfathered in. Uh, now, Uncanny X Men returned to its roots as the flagship title for the X franchise, and served as the umbrella under which various X books coexisted. Uh, in 2011, in the fallout of X Men Schism, Uncanny X Men was canceled and restarted with a brand new number one two weeks later. Uh, this was notable as it was the final quote legacy numbered Silver Age Marvel title to get the new number one treatment. And this volume would last about a year before right. uh, in 2012, as part of the Marvel Now relaunch, several X-Men titles were canceled and relaunched, including Uncanny X-Force, Cable and X-Force, X-Factor, X-Men Legacy, which was now a Legion solo book, X-Men, volume three or four by this point, right. and Uncanny X-Men again. But also probably volume three or something like yes. that. Yes. <laughs> Now, the uh, relaunched Uncanny X-Men featured Cyclops, uh, his team, and the newer mutants taking up residency in a Weapon X facility, which they rebuilt into a school. This is the new Charles Xavier School for Mutants. Uh, new flagship titles such as Amazing X-Men and all new X-Men were also launched. The latter featured the original five X-Men members who were brought to the present day. That's a book that, uh, how did you feel about that? It confused the hell out of me. Uh, you know, I'm we'll talk about it a little bit later. I'm more of a fan of that. Uh, early Lee and Kirby, or I am a fan. I don't know, more of a fan. Hmm. And I was like, "Oh, this will be fun." You know, I'm gonna check this out. And I was like, "What is what is happening? <laughs> two two of everybody, and I don't know who is what and what's happening." It really confused me like crazy. It just annoyed me. Well, that's fair, I guess. You know, <laughs> you, you had a lot more of a history to be annoyed by. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I didn't get. I got about four issues into that, and I said, "Well, that'll do it for that." That was fun. <laughs> I didn't say that. Now, anyway, uh, in 2003 for the 50th anniversary. So, sorry, 2013 for the 50th anniversary of the X-Men Battle of the Atom was published, which involved members of both X-Men schools trying to decide what to do about time-displaced original X-Men. In 2014, Wolverine was killed off in the death of Wolverine's story arc. In 2015, as part of all new, all different Marvel. Three team books were launched, the second volume of all-new X-Men, the fourth volume of Uncanny X-Men, and Extraordinary X-Men. X-23 took on the mantle of Wolverine and got a new solo series. Old Man Logan began as a new ongoing series written by Jeff Lemire. During this time, the X-Men battled with the Inhumans due to Terrigan Mists being lethal to mutants all of a sudden. And also something about movie rights, that's way beyond oh. our scope, right? I don't think we, we, don't, sure. we don't get into that stuff. Uh, so in 2017, <laughs> the Resurrection lineup was launched with X-Men Prime. It introduced new titles, X-Men Blue, X-Men Gold, Weapon X, new volumes of Astonishing X-Men and Generation X, and the new solo series for Cable, Jean Grey and Iceman. And now we've got Marvel Legacy, which is anyone's game. I'm not sure what's going to mm -hmm. happen. And let me tell oh, you something, Chris. Do you think anyone that had never read an X-Men comic, do you think after listening to our breakdown, they will ever, <laughs> ever want to touch one again? They're going to run for the hills. You're like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, really, you know, I, 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 you know, we really tried to lay out a coherent, simple, you yeah. know, linear explanation for what happens, both from the publishing and the story side, but. I don't. I don't think there's enough hours in the day. Definitely not in this podcast to accurately talk about all the stuff that happened. But luckily, we do have a, a big X Men fan right here. Is, is uh, one of us, and it ain't me. So why don't you, why don't you tell them all about it? Well, 
I'll stop by talking about X Factor here because I uh, I think the first issue of X Factor that I read might have been one of those where X Factor the team didn't even show up during the uh, executioner song. Wow. Uh, and uh, I remember thinking that they got the number wrong on the outside of the book because it was in the mid-80s. And I'm like, there's no way this book went on for 80 issues. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a new one like with X-Force and uh, Volume 2. I thought right. it was going to be like a, in the teens, maybe. And when I saw it was in the 80s, I was like, oh, that's that's a long-standing book here. And uh, didn't – you know, there was no internet in you – know, or not, a, not an internet like we know it back yeah. in 2000, uh, 1992 – and uh, I saw the first – I saw X-Factor number one at a mall convention. I, I don't know if you're, you've ever been to a mall con- – you probably have. I, been to conventions I, being held in the halls of a mall or something. I definitely know of them. I actually have not ever been to one, but I know what you're oh. talking about. Yeah, you got to get to the SunVet Mall, man. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the mall cons, and uh, that's where I first saw X Factor number one, and it was five dollars, and I paid five dollars for it back in 1992. Wow. And uh, yeah, which is big for me now. <laughs> uh, and I was shocked to see the original five in the book because I didn't know any of that really. Oh, all right. I, I didn't. I didn't. I, I. You know, it. It's. I might not have even known that they were the original five at that point. Sure. It was just these guys are are on this team, and uh, and that's when I decided that you know I could probably collect this volume, and I and, and I made X Factor my first. I want to get them all. Uh, series. Right. And it actually wound up being one of my last <laughs> got them all series. Interesting. Wow. Because I, I found uh, there's a particularly expensive issue of X Factor. It's X Factor number 24, and it's uh, I think it's the first appearance of Archangel of Warren Worthington as Archangel. Okay. And uh, I found it in a dollar bin uh, several years ago, and put it back because I thought I had it. And then uh, when I was actually putting my uh, my library together, I found out that that was the only issue I did not have. And you had to clutch the chest, right? You're like, oh. yeah, it was one of those. I'm joining Elizabeth. Type thing. <laughs> and uh, and I'm looking everywhere for this book, and it's going for thirty bucks, forty bucks, fifty bucks. Uh, I actually went to a, a local store that opened here a few years ago, and they had it on the wall, no price on it. Hmm. And I asked how much it was, and he's like, hold on a second. And he starts typing into his computer, and I just walked out. <laughs> yeah, you're like, no. If you have to, anytime, if you have to yeah. type on your computer, you're not going to come back with a number I want to hear. You know? Anytime you're in a shop and someone's looking for prices online, just walk out. Right, you're done. Um, <laughs> actually, before I go on here, I was thinking about the mall convention so much here. I, I don't know if a lot of our listeners have uh, have been to these mall conventions uh, and if they have any stories from them, because these those were always so much fun. Uh, they were actually just about comic books. Uh, there was no personalities involved. There was no movies involved. And centered just around the, com- the mall store, right? There'd be a mall comic it shop. It would be there. like it would be like all the local dealers would just come and set up a booth right. and. Uh, and especially during you know the, you know 1992 the death of superman type time it's sure. uh i mean you could hardly walk because it was just so packed um it was actually the first places that i saw like wizard magazines in back issue bins and previews catalogs in back issue bins huh. priced up at like you know 10 bucks each for wow. a previews catalog so it's interesting, and I, I I don't know if any of our listeners have had uh, similar experiences. If you have, I'd love to hear. Uh, but the uh, but for the X Men, I, I I had been an X Men reader since I I want to say 
on and off since the late eighties and then really hardcore towards now, you know, towards, uh, this book, X factor 71 ish where, uh, it just became the thing that I, I read. I, I moved over from, uh, I was an elf quest reader and, uh, Got swept up in the X Men furor and uh, never looked back. And luckily, there was plenty of it to get to. There was, you know, right? Yeah. No dearth of titles to get every week at the store. Luckily for you, uh, actually, I, I never did look back until about a month ago. That's right. And uh, that's the uh, first uh, time you have an unbroken run of X Men from '92, right? Well, I have an uh, unbroken run of X Men since uh, just back. a little bit after Giant Size. All right, so oh, so even going further, way further mid seventies. Yeah, but, but now that run has been broken. Will it remain broken? I don't know, folks. You know, when, <laughs> when Chris when Chris sees some of those, when, if they come up with a penny bin, you know, Maybe. You, you may find yourself filling in those holes. <laughs> uh, you know, ten ten for a penny, you might you might find sure. some of those coming in. But uh, I I find it interesting. You know, you someone, and you know, we've we've said before, you're not that far from me in age. But you are sure. sort of coming up in a in like I'm more a total 80s. different generation. Yeah, of you're comic like '90s fan. comics, yeah. and and a lot of '90s X-Men fans uh, have a strong connection to the cartoon, which you don't seem to have. Nope, I no, think, I don't. I, I think never was into the things must, like that. You must have been familiar with it, obviously. But sure, I, I mean, sure. some people. I mean, they. This was like a huge event for them as as a young person. So, uh, Chris is pure comics all the way, and I think again. It's because you came into it through ElfQuest. Yeah. You came into it from a comics place instead of just like a uh, whatever mass culture place. But regardless, it doesn't matter. The, the first time I saw the cartoon was uh, my father came home with Pizza Hut. And nice. uh, Pizza Hut had an X-Men, uh, an, like an X-Men tie-in or uh, whatever a Pizza Hut Happy Meal is, I guess. Right. And it was, uh, it was a video of the first two episodes featuring uh, like how Jubilee joined the was X-Men. That, was it VHS even? Yes. Yeah, oh, but, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think I still have it somewhere. Uh, but I remember it looking really, really cheap compared oh, yeah. to like Batman. Absolutely. I mean, Batman just looked sleek and really stylish. And then I saw the X Men, and it looked, it looked like like somebody who was. Uh, it looked like somebody was making GI Joe cartoons, but like got drunk beforehand. No, that that was so, definitely was, my take on them at the time. I I was actually, very, I, I'm almost positive I was either I was definitely a senior in high school or I was just starting college. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't really watching television too uh, closely anyway, but that was exactly the take I had. I looked at it, I was like, this looks like, you know, the, like that mm. Swamp Thing cartoon or like the MC yeah. Hammer cartoon, just like... <laughs> Hammer Man, yes. Yeah, the animating was not that great. <laughs> no, but anyway... Like sweatshop animation, yeah. I know, yeah, oh, there's no doubt about it. That was definitely the, the bad Korean... Well, I guess all, <laughs> all the good Korean studios were being used by Batman. That was the problem. <laughs> Batman and the real Ghostbusters. Anyway, uh, now we're... Now we're just going down memory lane, but I always do love to hear a little Chris story, especially when we do uh, X Men. He's got a long history there, uh, but of course, we always want to hear your history, your memories Certainly. of the mall cons. We want to hear about your connections to X Men, even to the cartoon, or want to know what you think about this issue or any other issue of X Factor. And you can let us know by writing to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic T-mail history. We're on Twitter at cosmic T-mail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Got weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com. Daily writings by Chris at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, which I tell you every week you should go check out. Kind of came about that in a weird way this week, but uh, 
<laughs> yeah, you write a different different review for a DC comic every day of the week. You've been kind of doing a lot of JSA, mm-hmm. uh, kind of all over the place. It's funny those. A lot of times, I get my impression of the comic you're reviewing from the cover. Yeah, and that yeah. series is basically like a Alex Ross painting gallery. You know, what I mean? that doesn't <laughs> really there. tell you what's happening <laughs> in the inside. But uh, great stuff. Excuse me. Thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, great stuff, I tell you, you gotta go check it out every day, or if you want to, you can kind of save them up and check them save out them once up. a week, whatever you like, however you like to do it. Yeah, just as, as long as you, as long as you want to check them out, there's pictures, you can just look at the pictures and disregard my writing. That's but, right. <laughs> uh, whatever works. Uh, we also have our own blog slash image depository at, uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, which I actually updated whoa uh, go check it out it's it's just some uh trigger girl six stuff at the moment uh but by the time you're listening to this it's probably going to be some x factor 71 stuff uh but you can still check the other one as well uh before we go we definitely want to give a big thanks to jesse Dijong for the suggestion yeah, uh, thank you very much jesse it's been uh it's probably been 10 years since i've read this and uh it, it it's it's both great and infuriating because I, I did enjoy it so much, but it also just shows me how terrible the X Men have become lately. Yeah, and uh, how they're just not the same team anymore. You know, just this is a, a as a last comment. Like this would have been a time in you know ninety one when I would have been like X Men's too crazy for me now. You know, this is, <laughs> this is I can't handle this. Whereas uh, you know, looking at the way the X Men are now, I'm like this is easy as pie. This is totally makes sense. This story the story is silly. Yeah, but it makes sense, and you know, yeah. I I have come to definitely appreciate silly a lot more in my older age. And and the thing of it is, it, it, you know, we d- mentioned it. This is before the internet was a big thing. So, you know, if you did have any questions about, you know, wh- wh- who is Cyclops in relation to Havoc, right? That was something you actually had to dig up. You mm-hmm. actually had to, you had to actually invest the effort into finding that out. I mean, like we found out, we mentioned. Cyclops' son, Nathan Christopher, but we didn't mention that that's also Cable. You know, that's right. yeah, <laughs> and, uh, that. but like, I remember during the Executioner song, like, have listening into like the seasoned, you know, the high school comic fans, and uh, they'd be saying, like, oh, I think Cable's going to be revealed to be Cyclops' son. And we're just like, Cyclops has a son? <laughs> so it's like, it made it feel like this was so much more ours Definitely. that we, we actually put the effort in, we took ownership of it. And, uh, I mean, as an aside, I, uh, I'm i currently trying to get into a, another uh, series of books that is deep and steeped in lore, oh, and yeah. that's the Legion of Superheroes. Oh, Never boy. understood them before. I'm trying to get into them. And the fact that everything is at my fingertips, I mean, I, I did a, a story. I, I read the Lightning Saga from mm-hmm. uh, the Justice League, Justice Society crossover, where they mentioned a uh, lightning rod uh, killing one of the characters back in the 60s, and I was able to type that into Google and bring it up, and it was just like so unsatisfying as compared yeah. to as compared to having to go to the library and pulling Sons of Marvel Origins off the shelf and being like, Beast was an original X Man. Oh my God! You know, it's just no, you're, so nuts. It's it's very much like you know with with the caption callouts. It it very much is like for people that. I mean, people that listen to the show already buy comics, so they know sure. what that's like. But it's also like when you're hunting down records back in the long ago, you'd read the liner notes, and then you're like, all right, this is a guy on this, now I see him on this album, and now you're like yep. kind of branching out. Uh, what's good about this comic, though, and what makes it X-Factor 71 a good comic is it alludes to a lot of different story. 
Mm-hmm. It alludes to a ton of different things, but you don't need to know any of it. No, you don't no. need. You don't even need to know that. I, I'm. I'm not positive they mentioned that havoc and. Cyclops and brothers, and you don't need they to might know not, it yeah. for this story. You just need to know that he respects them, him, him, yeah. and Cy- Professor X. You get that point. You get the fact that Rain, you know, thinks Professor X is the bee's knees. You, Dreamy. Yeah. You pretty much get the idea. So it's uh, good comics, folks. In the end, this Absolutely. is well worth your time. But I think that's all we got for him this week. Chris, got anything else for him? I think I'm done. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill, Uncle Atomically. Oh, no, you didn't. (laughs) See ya.